1: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
2: Hi there, I'm Georgie Ainsley, and every week I talk to someone who is a performance person. They could be an athlete from the world of entertainment, business, or politics. They could even be an astronaut. The key link is, of course, that they all know how to perform at the top level, and they can teach us all a thing or two about how to do that in our own lives at whatever it is that we do. Performance People is available wherever you get your podcasts or, of course, you can watch us on YouTube where you can also subscribe, and please do. Paula Radcliffe, MBE, is a former British long-distance runner. She's a three-time London Marathon winner and New York Marathon champion, Chicago and Helsinki Marathon winner and has won multiple medals at World Championships and Commonwealth Games. She lives in Monaco with her family and is now an athletics commentator.
3: We actually do just have to do this. You don't have a choice. We have to go through this. We're going to kill this tumour. We're going to visualise each day the tumour shrinking. Like you visualise in training that you're getting to a better platform. He was the first person to give me a big hug when I was brought back after Athens. um, And that was all I needed at that point. Didn't need any words. There were no words. I just needed a hug actually challenging my integrity and everything that I stood up for, and people not believing the truth about you, uh, which was really, really hard to deal with. And he was the person saying, you know what? You know the truth. You can only control what you control. Um, You can't control what other people do. You can't control what life throws at you. You can't control what someone else is gonna do in the race and how they're gonna turn up. You can only control yourself. Female sport's there for a reason. It needs to be protected. It's not personal. It's not discriminatory. It is just making sure that that female category is what it's meant to be, a female category, and it's fair competition.
2: So, Paula, thanks so much for agreeing to do this pod. And just before we came um, on air, we had some technical issues, which we've now resolved. <laughs> but in our technical issues chat, I asked you what you had for breakfast this morning, as is sort of standard procedure for a sound person, which I'm not, to ask of their guest, which you are. And, and what was your response?
3: <laughs> So my response was that in the morning I generally get up first thing I have some freshly squeezed lemon juice and then I have a cup of of black coffee and a couple of squares of dark chocolate and then I get my run in and then I usually have quite a good breakfast but because I was rushing and a bit late this morning I literally just had a quick protein shake and a banana. So is it standard because everything else sounds pretty
2: normal but is it standard for you to have a couple of squares of chocolate every morning is that sort of a a performance
3: thing from your past? I don't know if it's a performance thing or a personal thing um I just I you do just really like dark chocolate I justify <laughs> it with that it. it's got um, resveratrol it's got magnesium in it's um it's a quick energy fix and I guess that's the reason why I started doing it is if I'm rushing out I know I can't always really do that on an empty stomach. Um, I used to when I was training in preparation for marathons, sometimes. Um, but now it's just something that's quickly digested, so it's not going to repeat or bounce around on me in my in my stomach. But it's going to give me a quick bit of an energy shot so for every my run. single so then person. I get my run in and then I have the healthy breakfast.
2: See, every single person listening to this pod is going to think, amazing, Paula Radcliffe has given me permission to eat chocolate for breakfast. It's just, it has to be dark chocolate, right? It has to be dark chocolate. <laughs> it's more pre-breakfast. I think of Even it like it's better. my pre-breakfast. It's better. Um, so I was, I was Googling you, I was Googling you as everybody would do um, in preparation for a chat. And the first thing that popped up that I, I couldn't seem to lose from the first page of Google searches was that Paula Radcliffe way is being resurfaced. <laughs> It's everywhere in oh the Bedford God. News that they're resurfacing Paula Ragliff Way. It's not even been there that long. <laughs> I just, how, I the just loved it. Resurfacing. There are about 25 articles about how they've had delays and setbacks and problems with the resurfacing oh works. But gosh. now they're well and truly on top of it and works will be completed as expected. So I'm sure you're very relieved to hear that.
3: <laughs> yeah. And thank goodness my parents have moved away from there.
2: Um, so the other thing then that came up was this, and, and actually I had to track back quite a long way to find it because you're obviously a very private person. Um, but then this, then these articles started to appear about the things that you had dealt with in the pandemic and post pandemic with your beautiful daughter being sick and her cancer diagnosis and also losing your dad. And I was thinking to myself, well, so many of us had our own stories through the pandemic to deal with, but that sounds like a pretty excruciating thing to have gone through during that period of time. I mean, did you channel, did you use, I mean, sometimes sport can help you in lots of different ways. Did you have to use what, you know, your inner resources to actually get yourself through that period?
3: Without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, I mean, running's always been kind of my healing time, what I've turned to 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 make me feel better, to kind of make me feel better to attack the day, to think through things if I've got big decisions to make or problems to solve. I always found that that would work better on a run, right back to when I was doing my A-levels and I couldn't do a maths problem. I'd just go out for a run. When I came back, I could look at it with fresh eyes and and kind of get it done. Um, But through that time, I mean, through the time that my dad was in the um, intensive care unit, uh, we could only just speak to him luckily we had a really nice nurse who would kind of just put the the phone on speaker beside Mm -hmm. him because he was on a ventilator. and that was so, so hard. So I would kind of rehearse through what I was going to say, because obviously every conversation that I've always had with my dad has always been, there's somebody else answering you and you know that he's hearing what I'm saying and he's the, he was the best listener ever. Um, so it was really, really hard to get in my head, what am I going to say? And I'm really proud of my daughter that at that time when she was just turned 13, um, that she was able to to kind of sit and talk to him because... We didn't know. And as it turned out, when they took him off the ventilator, he didn't come through it. Um, so I don't, we don't know whether he could hear us or not. He did open his eyes. The nurse was able to tell us that. But I think because of the COVID thing, it was that made it all so, so much harder. Not least the fact that they to the end insisted on the diagnosis being a potential COVID and it was not at all. Um, it was heart failure that was confused as COVID. Um, so he was in kind of this middle room literally, because they couldn't put him into the intensive care unit with the non-COVID patients, and they couldn't put him with the COVID patients because he kept testing negative. They kept insisting it was that, it wasn't that. So he was literally in, in the corridor in between the two. Um, and we couldn't get to see him. My mum couldn't get in to see him. So trying to, to be there for everyone was, was really, really impossible. And the flip side of being somebody who kind of is a little bit in the public eye, is I was actually told as well, no, you can't break the rules. You can't try and go into the UK mm. to see him um, because then it'll be all oh, well, she did. And so you you can't. Um, and yet I had friends who were doing that, who were just... Going back to to see parents that were in not well um, and for funerals and things like that, uh, and I couldn't do that, so yeah, it was extremely hard and then so that was eighth uh, of April. My dad um, passed away, so it was kind of really at the beginning of lockdown um, and so then we had to kind of survive through that in the end, I snapped and I got permission from the Monaco government. So the date that everything opened up in kind of France, Monaco, um, May the 11th, I was able to fly back to yeah, Heath, flew back to Heathrow. My mum met me in the car park there. We still didn't know all that was g- going around about COVID um, and everything. So I literally had two pairs of two sets of clothing, um, and I stripped off in the car park, the outer layer, put it in a bin bag, put it in the back of her car. Then I was able to give her a hug, go back to her house, washed all my kit out, and then the next. Day, um, just put her in the cart. She slept the entire way back here, and we had permission to tr- kind of drive through all of the um all of the controls along the way. Um, and she stayed with us then for about five, six weeks um, before came back to the UK with her the first time. And then we did that a couple of times because she was so scared to fly. Um, and then the second time that we took her back was kind of August time, and my daughter had been kind of acting up a little bit. I think she was kind of like, I don't know, she was spending a bit more time in the gym. She was definitely more temperamental, um, crying a lot more. She was getting extremely painful periods. Um, and so when we came back from dropping mum that time, went straight in to see the paediatrician. Um, paediatrician sent us for a scan the next day. And within a week, we were starting chemo oh in um, the hospital in Nice. Um and I think, yeah, that through that time, I mean, a looking back on it, so, so fortunate that we have an amazing pediatrician who actually lost a mama and a sister to ovarian cancer. So the minute she felt the lump and the mass in Isla's stomach, I knew on her face that, that something was wrong. Um, and then very, very quick to reassure us that like the adolescent version is not ovarian cancer it is a malignant germ tumor and it's it's bad but it's it's no it's treatable Uh, and the prognosis was good we'd caught it um kind of i guess fairly late in there. it was quite big it was 16 centimeters by 13 centimeters by 11 centimeters so it's huge um and that was why she'd kind of been spending more time in the gym she thought that she was putting on weight and so she was doing more sit-ups and things like that and obviously that was why the painful periods um, because sometimes it was the tumor bleeding not not an actual period um and so yeah a lot of things then made sense and talking to her about it, at that point, it was actually a relief because I think she was she struggling with something wasn't right and psychologically all of that was coming out. And, I mean, she gets mad with me now, but I was very open with it. I said, I'd, I'd actually researched child psychologists and I thought it was some kind of kick-on effect from losing my dad. Um, And I'd researched all of that and then we found out what it was. She had an explanation. It became extremely tough and it was scary, but... I think for her, it was a relief to know that she wasn't imagining things. She wasn't acting out. It was, there was a real reason why she didn't feel like herself uh, and why she was kind of feeling all of these emotions swirling around inside. And her hemoglobin was kind of nine because um, the tumor was taking everything. So um, the effect on her body and why she was feeling so fatigued was huge. Um And so, yeah, we went through the, the chemo. The first say, so we had, three stays of um you stay in for a week but it's kind of five consecutive days uh, of treatment and then they keep you in for another 24 hours just to make sure that they kind of flush out all of the the chemo nastiness um from your body before she left so she was on drips and things the entire time that she was in the stay and then we'd have a couple of weeks off um, which would be longer towards the end because it, she needed the white cells to come back up again before she went back in for the next, the next day, um, and so she would absolutely be very open and say that the worst thing for her was losing her hair. Yeah. That was the hardest thing for her. She said she could deal with all the tiredness. Um, we kind of she had she had the support with the rest of it. I don't think she was ever so low that she thought she wasn't going to get through it. Um, and I think that was also a real blessing Um, and also maybe a little bit of, of childhood naivety and everything. But she said that the first day was fine because she didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. The second day she knew what was going to happen, but it was worse. So there was me with my sportsperson mentality going in, come on, we've got this. This is the last day. This yeah. is like the home straight now. We've absolutely got this. And she said, you know what, mom, that was the last thing I wanted to hear because <laughs> the third one was the worst one. And she actually, for her... Brevet exam, which was um, equivalent of GCSEs, she wrote about it uh, and she wrote about how that third stay was the very worst because wow. she had expected the second one to be like the first one and it was worse. So she was fully expecting this one to be a lot worse again. Um, and actually she said it wasn't as bad as she had built it up to be, but going into it was absolutely the worst time. Whereas for me, I think I found the the actual surgery stay harder. And... Um, because, you just feel I, you know, complete just a really complete lack
2: of control as well because you're obviously somebody yeah, that yeah. plans meticulously about everything. But suddenly, like this is completely out of your comfort zone. This is completely out of your control. We're living in a shutdown world where immunity is king, and you know the prize goal basically is to stay <laughs> well. And you're dealing with all of this with with the, the the you know the person that you love the most in the world. So what you know? Did you have how did you? So Sort of make sure that you, you didn't, or or did you just show her exactly how you felt as you went through through that journey, or were you able to compartmentalise it? Did you get to a place where you ever could?
3: Yeah, and that's where I think I think the. Running and the sports mentality helped me in a lot of ways. Um, it helped me because I could just get that time. So for me, if I was going out um, from the hospital and we were under the 1K restrictions, so I was literally running up and down a 1K restriction the first day. And then the next time I could go up to 5K radius. So that was fine. Um, but I, if I could even just do 20 minutes of that and just go in and then have kind of got all of those demons, all of that anguish out of my system and mm-hmm. process that a little bit more, then I could go back and I could be a strong person for her because she will openly admit that, what you want there. And you're probably the person that you need there the most when you're going through something like that is your mom, is someone that Mm. you can be horrible to, you can be bitchy to, you can say, keep those nurses the hell out of my room. I don't want this. You can do all the rude stuff. And I said, you can do all of that to me. You can do it to the nurses. They're amazing. And they were absolutely amazing. And she wasn't. Um, I said, but if you don't want to speak, you can absolutely. And she had this pink hoodie and she was like, snuggled up in the bed with a hoodie, like pulled over her head. And she's like, sometimes I don't want to talk. But if I do want to talk, I need you to be there. And I think she just needed to know that no matter what, I was there and I was strong and whatever she told me that she could eat that day, we'd go and get it. And so it was completely random. Sometimes it was really easy. I just want a pan of chocolat. I can go and get that from the cafeteria downstairs. No problem. Kiwis was a little bit harder. I had to <laughs> run to the shop to be able to find those and then run back like holding kiwis in my hand. But it was just, okay, anything that you can eat, tell me what it is. And we will try and make that happen um and then the sports mentality as well of just literally control what you can control do what you can each day that way really helped so we had a plan we had the chemo plan the nurses and the doctors were amazing in explaining it all and so being able to have that as well and say okay we actually do just have to do this you don't have a choice we have to go through this we're going to kill this tumor we're going to visualize each day the tumor shrinking like you visualise in training that you're getting to a better platform, we're going to visualise visualize that tumour shrinking. And then the fact that they do scans at the end of each stay and every couple of weeks as well. And they were showing us, OK, this much has died. You might be feeling like shit, but the tumour is dying now. And by the time she went in for surgery at the end, it was 95% dead. There was only a tiny little kernel in the middle of it um that was still alive and that needed to be removed so that really helped and then i think the teamwork just i'm very very fortunate in that i had some amazing friends and family around us Um, and not just in terms of supporting isla and myself but making sure that gary and raf were okay as well because the trauma that goes through your mind thinking okay i'm concentrating on one child and he's actually now got to go through school. He's not getting that support that I was able to give before with kind of the French homework and with everything there. So, having a very good friend of his and uh, his mum is a is a great friend of mine. Just having her there to be able to say, you know what, I've got Raph. I can look after him. He's being he's fine. Liaising with the teachers there to make sure that's okay, and then having my support support work of friends around me that I could literally just call and chat to and go into the parents' room and cry and chat to them, not in front of her, um, really, really helped me. Um, And one friend just called one day and she knew that I was worrying because chemo just kills your appetite and she didn't want to eat anything. And she said, ask Isla if she'll eat my homemade pizza. And I said, you know what, I could do. So she drove from Monaco to Nice in the pandemic with this pizza wrapped in foil. She wasn't able to stay. She literally just had to hand it over in the car park. And then the best thing to be able to say, phone her back and say, you know what, she ate everything.
2: And when you're in those moments and you're having, yeah, I think that was. And you're in those moments and you're having to crisis manage, right? So you're just in complete and utter, we're going to get through this. We're going to crisis manage it mode. And then, and then thank God the best thing happens and it goes away and, and you, you've got the all clear, do you have any form of PTSD after that? Do you have any form of how, how to deal with that afterwards? Because it feels to me like you throw all your resources at the problem and then what happens after? And I know as athletes, you talk a lot about not having great highs and great lows and always keeping this sort of middle ground, this equilibrium uh, with everything you do, whether that be training or competition. I mean, how do you manage that in real life with a, with a dilemma like, like the one that you've been through?
3: I think the biggest thing is being honest, um, and talking about it. And that's one thing that I'm eternally grateful that my, my parents and especially my dad taught me. And, um, yeah. I did feel like going through this when I needed that advice from my dad, if I thought about it, I knew it because he'd done such a great job teaching me that growing up and being there and kind of just all of those little things they'd said to me through the years. So, um, I mean, obviously he, He was the first person to give me a big hug when I was brought back after Athens. Um, And that was all I needed at that point. Didn't need any words, there were no words. I just needed a hug. And he was there with that. He was the person of reason when I went through everything um, in 2015, which up until that point had probably been the worst thing that I'd gone through because it was actually challenging my integrity and everything that I stood up for. And people not believing the truth about you, uh, which was really, really hard to deal with. And he was the person saying, you know what? You know the truth. The people that are important to you know the truth and he was able to to say all of that so I think going through that put me in a really good place to kind of deal with this and I think the first thing I had to say was yeah you know what There there is trauma sorry there is trauma that comes from this um and that will always be there and we have to talk about it and I, I've talked about it with Isla she was brilliant in coming to me actually not after the first day we had um a little bit of a scare so she had tests every couple of months and then we were just about to go from every two month checks to um four to six month checks when there was something showed up on one of the mris so in february she was rushed in again and they did a whole um other operations so they were an hour and a half by keyhole couldn't find anything actually did a whole cesarean thing still couldn't find anything so then she came out the other side and they said it's great there's nothing bad in there and I said, "Yeah, but we just cancelled a holiday. She's just gone through all of that anguish of, yeah. of the cancer being back. So how do I explain to a 16-year-old that yeah, it's all hunky-dory. It's great. There's nothing there. It's fine. It, there are there is still that trauma there." And she, at that point, turned around to me and she said, "Mom, you need to find me a psychologist." Um, wow. So I put her in touch with somebody. They do a Skype. Um, calls as, as as often as she needs and it has been amazing um, and we've talked to, with her about the fact that now I think actually she was always one of those kids that has a slightly higher level of emotional maturity even from yeah. a little kid um, and she has a sense of, of empathy and a sense of standing up and saying what she thinks even when it gets her in hot water um, she's always had that um, and that has if anything become a little bit greater so we've talked about the fact that she can't expect from her friends the same level of emotional understanding and kind of really getting it and being there Um, and she has to be able to to be okay with that and to kind of like forgive them for that. that is that she's gone through something that's made her um, a tougher stronger person with then that she's got to make sure that those higher standards can fix for herself, but she can't put those on other people. Yeah, it's
2: really interesting that, isn't it? It's sort of like you say, she's been through something that no one, you know, the whole bunch of people, especially her school friends, can't really comprehend. So it's, and, and yeah, no. I suppose you want to keep her young, but some of her innocence has has obviously passed as a result of going through yeah. what is, a, you know, a, a very traumatic moment. So,
0: yeah, it, trying, trying mm-hmm. to keep the balance
2: with obviously her becoming more emotionally mature because
3: of that with her youth, because she's still so young. I know, um, but it it is good. And she is now very, I mean, she talked to me about the last time uh, that she talked with the psychologist that she uh, talked about how betrayed she felt by the school. Um, Because at the time, the school that she was at didn't really understand. So when she went back, the doctor said she was supposed to go back at half time, um, just... On doing half days basically and the school said no you can't do half days you either repeat the whole year or you have to do what you can but you can go to the nurse's station and lay down and she thought she had a really bad memory how we got through that um preveilleur, because I was he- helping her a lot. Her wardrobe, she's got like three big doors and they were all covered in um that white uh, sticky stuff that you yeah. can re- write on with markers <laughs> and then erase. And um we used to write all on that and we'd go around and by the time we were on the second one, she'd forgotten the beginning of the first one. And then she said to me the other day, and she's doing really well at school at the minute, she said to me, you know what, mum, I've actually got a really good memory. And it was just that chemo brain, which yeah. kind of stayed for, I want to say like, at least a year, maybe a little bit longer afterwards um a year and a half two years almost before she was able to kind of really find what she's good at um so I think yeah it's that we I think the first step to to dealing with that PTSD is kind of accepting it and talking about it and I kind of do, I think of sometimes in my runs as my therapy and it literally mm. will be just okay wherever my mind wants to go today whatever I need to sort out and I put the world to rights and sometimes it's nothing to do with me sometimes it's <laughs> other things going on in the world and and sometimes it's just my things and sometimes I actually really stupidly but I just talk to my dad and I just get advice um and I kind of think through what I want because I think a I feel happier you feel like you're, you're kind of a bit more perspective on the whole world because you just one person running out through the middle of nature and it is beautiful and we are very lucky to to kind of have that um so i find that perspective comes much more easily when i'm running and then if it gets really really bad i actually do my own therapy so i i'd write almost like a diary form for what i would tell myself um but that's only when i'm really kind of got a, a, lot of spare time um, and B, um, just really feel like I need to do that. Most times I can process it on my run. And that's why I think the run has become that time of the day when it really doesn't matter anymore how fast I'm running or what I'm actually achieving other than I'm just running and thinking and processing and coming back better than I left the house, which is the goal uh, of most of my runs now.
2: And here's a crazy question. Do you enjoy running more now than before, or do you miss the competitive element of it? Because, you know, I wonder if that competitive element ever truly leaves an athlete. Do you compete now with yourself as opposed to others, or do you just run because you love it?
3: Um, I don't think I really, I don't compete now when I'm running, Um. Because I know, I know I'm know i slower than I was. Uh, I don't really want to know how fast I'm running because the run has a different purpose. So I probably do enjoy each run more now because if there are those days, which there are when you're training hard um, and when you're in those hard blocks of training, there are inevitably runs that you don't feel like going on and you really have to force yourself. And it's that motivation of the goal of competition that gets you out to do it. But now if I don't feel like going, I don't go. Um, and if I want to go, then I go. So every run... I probably enjoy more um, now than I'd enjoyed every single run then. Having said that, I loved being in that training environment. It wasn't a sacrifice for me. I liked pushing my body. I liked the feeling of kind of just seeing that little personal battle of seeing, can I push my body a little bit harder? Can I do that session a little bit quicker this time? Can I do a little bit quicker in that race? I loved all of that. Um, And I loved the competitive side of it. And I think I did worry that... I wouldn't be able to ever replace that in my life. And then because of the way that retirement was kind of forced on me uh, with a foot injury and I couldn't run for a long time. I think that probably saved me from all of that because I actually just was so grateful to be able to get out and run eventually. And I had to work so hard to get back to that point that in all of that. I forgot about the fact that I was missing competition and I was replacing that adrenaline shot of competition with something else because I was involved in in the commentary. So I was able to be there at the events and experience the atmosphere and then have to quickly think, okay, this is something that now I'm not good at. I've got to get good at. I need to learn. I need to progress. Um, The nerves for that would sometimes be way more than for a race because for a race, I would know that, okay, I'm, perfectly ready for this. I'm one of the best. I, I know I can go there and compete. Um, whereas here I was like, okay, I'm really not yet. I need to get there. <laughs> um, and th- there's a lot of adrenaline flowing and um, where sometimes the adrenaline's a good thing in, in competing because it pops up, it up a li- level. If it's too much, it's detrimental. And it's the same in commentating as well. Your voice goes funny. you Brain starts firing stupid things, you just keep pronouncing things wrong. Um, so it kind of messes you up. So you have to learn to, to control that in a different way. And I guess I like that challenge. And what I tried to do was replicate the, the challenge missing in, um, in com- competition with different challenges in my life uh, and just try and keep focusing on those. And how much of it, when
2: you were running, is up here? How much of it is about the mental battle and overcoming that as opposed to the physical piece, because I guess there must be a point where you get to a place where you can be no better than you are physically, but does it so much of it
3: come down to what's up here um yes i think I think a lot of it does i think a lot of life does it comes down to kind of how much you can put things in perspective. Uh, and again, yeah. going back to what my dad always used to say, you can only control what you control. Um, you can't control what other people do. You can't control what life throws at you. You can't control what someone else is gonna do in the race and how they're gonna turn up. You can only control yourself. So you can only be the best person that you can be and kind of live up to your standards. Um, and there are always things that we can do better about ourselves. So I, I guess it's kind of looking at, at those things. Um, and that is probably why I, why I loved running so much because it really was, okay, this is my time to just try and make myself better and to work with the things that my body's good at and my mind is good at it as well. And I do think that was a big advantage for me in the marathon. My mind loved the marathon. Um, it fit. I'm kind of. bit of a a geek. Um, I like trying to fix things. I like trying to persevere with things. I like trying to take on those little personal battles of kind of pushing through things. So it's not like it was a game, but it it was fun for me to like, oh, let me see if I can take myself to that pain zone and just hold it off, hold it off, hold it off uh, and enjoy that side of it. So it was never about fame for me or trying to win races for financial reasons or anything like that. It was trying to be better Than I had been before, and trying to see how fast I could go, and trying to kind of yeah win that battle with everything that's saying okay slow down, slow down, it's hurting, this is hurting, that's hurting. (laughs) Try and block all of that out, um, and just focus on being quick and keeping going, um, and kind of block out all distractions, not let things get to you.
2: One of the things I love that your dad used to talk to you about and sometimes parents just make so much sense. We hate to admit it, but they really can. And one of the things that I read that he had said to you is before... You used to ha- sometimes suffer with um, uh, sleep insomnia pre-races. And he just said, mm-hmm. doesn't matter. You've slept the rest of the week. You'll be absolutely fine if you don't sleep the night before.
3: I mean, yeah. is, that, is that genuinely that, a thing? No, I, mean- I can go and get a hammer from the garage and I can knock you on the head with it if you like. And <laughs> um, That was another thing. that he <laughs> But I know that was a joke. <laughs> but he said, yeah, he just used to say, well, you're laying down, you're, you're, you're resting your legs. You've slept all week because I actually was, um, I am someone that needs sleep. Um, so my daughter can go on three hour sleep some nights and she'll just stay up reading and then she'll be up too early. And I'm like, I can't wrap my head around that and how she can function because I can't function if I don't get enough sleep. So I think he was very much stating from this. Okay. I know you slept all week. Now you're just nervous. Just lay there and just think about how are you going to run the race, just think things through. Um, and that really, really helped. And he did say so many people that really perform at the highest level also can't sleep the night before the race, but guess what? They've stockpiled it all beforehand, like you've done the training. So all you need to do is make sure that you're not walking around all night um, and it's your legs that need to be rested. You're not going to run so much with your brain. So just try and switch off and just lay there and you will fall asleep. And it worked. It stopped me stressing about it.
2: And what's now with your role as an uh, athletics commentator? You're sort of observing what's going on in, in the world that you know and you love so dearly. How is it changing before your eyes? I mean, there's so much debate and conjecture at the moment um, with mm-hmm. regards to trans athletes, um, with regards to all manner of different um, dynamics that are happening within world athletics. I mean, what's your sort of observation of the direction in which it's traveling and, and how to, how? World Athletics can best manage that?
3: Um, I mean, I think World Athletics are doing a very good job, particularly of managing the the DSD um, trans issue and just making sure that, yeah, female sport's there for a reason. It needs to be protected. It's not personal. It's not discriminatory. It is just making sure that that female category is what it's meant to be, a female category, and it's fair competition. Uh, for the athletes, I do think it's, it's very difficult now to... Um, because there are so many different facets that weren't there when I was racing in terms of... I think social media is so much harder mm. for the athletes. Um The actual ability to kind of make a living uh, at the sport is, is a little bit harder as well because there are so many other sports out there. Um UK Sport is not maybe funding athletics as much as it was for the athletes to come and break through. They've really got to be... Something more than just the very top of their their sport. It's almost like they've got to have a personality that shines through. They've got to have something else there, and that in essence is is outside of your control. I mean, I can remember. If I think back to to when I was competing, um, I mean, when I won the BBC Sports Personality. And we were watching, I was watching the Beckham documentary with Ida. and um, I was saying that I'd I'd beaten him that night and by how many votes and she was laughing and she didn't believe me. And I said, but then actually people voted with a coupon on the back of the Radio Times and people were actually going to that effort. But you recognized as well that it's nothing to do with anything that you do achievement wise, whether someone likes you or not, is nothing that you can control. And I think that that is a lot more in your face on the social media side of it now and so i think for the athletes to a the time that it takes to run and manage a proper social media account to the level that sponsors perhaps expect is a big takeaway from from training as well but the maturity and ability to see that that is not the real world and the people that comment on there would never say that to your face would never even say that in a face-to-face interview or even probably in a written article um so that hurt that can come from that and the vulnerability for the athletes I think is a whole dimension that I think is slowly being recognized by people that are meant to protect the athletes and support them Um, but it's very very difficult to do and unless you have an athlete who's willing to say you know what, okay I will hand over management of that or I will come off social media I mean we know with our kids it's, it's really hard just to say okay you can don't go on it at all don't be affected by it Um, it, it's very very hard to do that so it's kind of like finding that balance and I guess in the same way that you try and help your kids and say come and speak to me about it it, it's making sure that someone is there for the athletes as well to kind of give them that kind of advice uh, as well um, because I do feel that they're a little bit more open to to scrutiny and to everybody weighing in um, with their own bit of, of, of kind of criticism there
2: And it's the other thing for me that worries me. It's the fact that the very people that usually these younger kids would turn to for advice don't really understand the world in which these young ones are growing up in. Because we're not anywhere near as savvy. I mean, look how long it took us to sort our podcast out. (laughs) We're nowhere near as savvy as we need to be to really understand the world in which they're living. So we can advise youngsters at a particular level on particular things but Mm -hmm. you know the the world in which they're living is so very different isn't it to the one that we experience like I I wonder if there's a there's a detrimental effect in 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 a way that you know does that mean that certain people won't ever get to where they should get to because all of this other stuff is going to be a major distraction and, and put them off
3: yeah I mean I guess I don't know. I think I prefer, I'm an optimistic person. So I think I prefer to look at it from, can we still equip? Because there are some things in the way that I was brought up, in the way that my dad uh, and my mum taught me, um, things. My grandma taught me about like perseverance, about deciding goals and what you're working towards and then just keeping, finding a different way working around it. But above all, being true to yourself. Um, and I do think that those morals and those values, do still hold today and are perhaps what a lot of the those faults that we're talking about on social media stem from because people just have lost sight of that. And it's the same with all, all the awful stuff that's happening in Israel and, and Gaza at, at the minute. And it's at the same time, I'm sitting doing my son's study in the philosophers of enlightenment, um, which he actually thought when it translated from French was the philosophers of the light bulbs, um, <laughs> which was, was a funny moment. But um, I'm trying to teach him that like the whole morals of all of that were that like it's supposed to be equal and that religion like creates all of these divisions. And what you actually just need is a whole lot more tolerance and understanding. And basically the basic rule that I teach him is like only treat other people as you would want to be treated by Yeah. You would want to be treated yourself. And if they don't treat you with that respect, they're not your friends and you don't need them as your friends. Find a better one. Um, and it, it is kind of like I do feel that the world has become too complicated and the actual answers are far more simple that, than people realize they are. And it's almost like that has been lost sight of. Um, I mean, you talked about the whole trans debate. The, viciousness that flows around there and the insults that get thrown from one side to the other and at the end of the day we're all people and we're all just trying to live our lives and there has to be a fair safe way to do that but every single person deserves the respect to be whatever they want to be and be whoever they want to be and you don't it doesn't mean you have to get there by insulting the other side they're kind of we're, we're all in this together um so yeah i do think it's it's made it very complicated now um and how we strip that back to just making it as simple as we possibly can certainly feels like it would be make it a much easier world for the kids to negotiate their way through because even in an easy world teenage growing up is, is isn't easy is it you're learning lots no. of things about yourself you're coming to yeah. terms with, with lots of changes it is really really tough um so we're just making it harder at the moment <laughs>
2: so with a with a with a glass half full hat on what does the future look like do you think for british athletics i mean you're watching it all unfold in front of your eyes as opposed to you being on the track these days what what are you, what are you thinking where are our great hopes going to come from come paris next year
3: I think we have such strength in depth uh, at the moment, um, particularly in the, the middle distance events. That's really, really exciting me. Um, and I think Jake Whiteman doing what he did, Laura Muir, Keely Hodgkinson, um, Ben Patterson, Ev- Josh Kerr this year. It's all, it's all building and coming through. Um, and what they're showing is, an amazing lesson to the youngsters following behind. If somebody looks at Laura Muir and the perseverance that she had to to put in to come through like how many times just committing, running the race her way, uh, maybe not the way to get a medal, but the way to try and win it and it not panning out, not panning out. And then finally she gets that Olympic medal. And then she's really showing that KJT with what she did, um, like absolutely on top of the world, then right, right at the bottom. And she's been very honest about talking about how she came through all of that self-doubt and was it really what she wanted to do? Um, and then coming back to do what she did, not a 100%, absolutely just holding it together uh, last year was so special. And I think to see that, if that doesn't motivate a young athlete coming through to kind of understand that, okay, there are ups and downs and there might be a few more bumps along the road than I would really want, but it's really worth it if you can just get through just for a few of those times where you can walk off the track and say, you know what? I loved that. I was able to do the best that I could do on the day. And that was enough. Um, and it sometimes doesn't matter then whether that's a a gold, silver, bronze or fifth, sixth or a personal best, as long as you can walk off and say everything that I had on that day, I was able to pull together and give it absolutely my very best effort. And I think we're starting to see that mentality show now. Um, and it's hard for them because the consistency isn't there at the top we've had changes at the top they're being sent the message by uk sport okay we're not putting the money into athletics that we used to even though you've actually just done your most successful world championships uh, since 1993 or something um they are having to do that on their own and mm. they're learning that it can be done on your own and it can be done Uh, And those role models are there. And the opportunity in Paris, I think, is, I mean, it's not going to exactly replicate London in 2012, but it's not that far away either. It is kind of like a home from home. It's not like the other side of the world that family, friends, supporters can't get to. It's not somewhere that these athletes have never competed before. It's very close. It's very at home, if it's not exactly at home, maybe with a bit less of the pressure that would come from being at home, but just as much support can travel there uh, and will be there. Um, and it's kind of a little bit of a return to normality, I think for the athletes in terms of Tokyo, Sephora wasn't quite because it wasn't in the right year. And then we've been back to back world championships since, and everything's been trying to catch up. So this is in essence now the first back to normality. And they're able to go where they want to train and prepare and go in as they would normally have done to an Olympics. And um, I think that will help a lot of them as well. But just to see that perseverance, it doesn't just come overnight. You might suddenly appear at the very top of your sport like Keely did, Um, but she's still working there and she's still still motivating everybody by trying to, to get to that point. I feel like the answer is going to be
2: two squares of dark chocolate. But if there was anything else other than that, (laughs) what would be your best performance tip for people for everyday life? So if you were saying to people, this helps you every single day to be better at whatever you do, what would it be? One thing?
3: start each day with a run um uh, no start each day with what makes you feel better i think and i think having that sense of perspective so i do it while i'm on my run okay this is where i am these are the things that i'm still working on this is where i want to get to and these are the things that i'm happy with these are the things that i'm not really happy with um and i need to have time to work on those and then there has to be a priority order to that and i think the big tip I, I guess is being kind to yourself as well. You can't be perfect all the time. You can't get everything done that's on that list every single day, you're not. that's not gonna happen. So you have to prioritize and do what's most important and accept that you're human, you've done your best at the end of the day. And there's always gonna be things before you go to sleep that are gonna get rolled over to the next day. And those things might keep getting rolled over. <laughs> um, but eventually, eventually you'll be able to get to them at some point. <laughs>
2: Ah, oh, Paula, that's great. Thanks so much. It's been a really quite emotional, actually, conversation. Thank you so much for.
3: speaking I know. To sorry.
2: Us. <laughs> no, it's like you're making that's me all right. well I'm up. I'm really sorry
3: it. for the problems. No, it's absolutely fine. I'm Thank you run so up much. Sign him out.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Paula. Okay. Thanks. All
3: right.